Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, September 1st, and it will begin airing on Sunday, September 5th, 2021. Um, Hello, everybody. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. How's it going, ladies? Well, happy September. Happy uh, Tornado Watch, September. Um, Yeah, about that. Last blood warning. That's the rainiest day ever today in New York City. Is it really? I mean, it was for me. Oh, okay. (laughs) Because I think that actually, (laughs) I think, um, was it two weeks ago with that hurricane? It actually was like they recorded like the most rain in a certain time period ever in New York or something. Yeah. So you got to be careful. Yeah. That word. I mean, you know, but what I'm thinking about all the people down in Louisiana with the really bad weather. True. So, like, thinking of them sending positive thoughts. And- yeah, exactly. Praying for everybody who's been affected by these hurricanes and these storms all over the world for the past, like, two months. Still mm-hmm. praying for the people in Haiti as well, uh, still cleaning up from mm-hmm. the storms. So. Uh, uh, hope- earthquake. Right, right. We yeah. hope where you are, things are going well, and we got a great episode for you today. Uh, for our local news, we'll be discussing the Rikers staffing crisis. And for our national news segment, we have a good story about restorative voting rights for people affected by criminal justice in North Carolina. In world news, we'll be talking about an attack on a gold mine in Burkina Faso. And finally, for our good news, um, is about the new climate change office in the U.S. Department Health Department. So we're going to go ahead and kick off our episode today with the local news segment. Emily, you're up, girl. All righty. So this story comes from an August 26th article published by TheCity.NYC by Rachel Sherman, and it's titled Rikers Staffing Crisis Limits Access to Medical Care. With thousands of officers not coming into work, incarcerated people are getting escorted to their medical appointments. Oh, I'm sorry aren't getting escorted to their medical appointments, a New York Focus investigation finds. Uh, New York Focus is, quote, an independent investigative news site covering New York state and city politics. Um, So they worked on this that was published in a different outlet. And I am also, please note, I'm going to be quoting directly from this article quite a bit. So the article explains, quote, a letter sent Tuesday by a federal monitor overseeing New York City jails sounded the alarm on a high level of disorder and chaos and a failure to provide basic services to people in custody. Uh, fueling the escalating crisis is a staffing shortage that's also made getting medical care at Rikers Island and other city lockups an ordeal, an investigation by New York Focus found. City jails, uh, sorry, city jails records show thousands of missed medical appointments each month at a time when prompt care is especially urgent. In March 2021, one in five scheduled doctor's visits didn't happen, 12,914 in all. The reason the jail's leadership and unions representing staff agree is that there simply aren't enough correction officers on hand to escort people to appointments. The letter from Monitor Steve Martin to U.S. District Court Judge Laura Swain highlighted the severe security risks, including suicides in cells and escalating use of force by officers, resulting from a a staffing crisis that has over a third of the department's uniformed officers sidelined. As detailed by the Monitor, the Department of Correction reported that at the end of July, about 1,650 out of 8,500 officers were out on sick leave, while another 1,400 were on restricted duty that kept them away from incarcerated people. 
Those numbers don't include an additional 2,300 times throughout the month that officers missed work without calling in. An anonymous health provider at Rikers Island said that it's a, quote, situation waiting for disaster if another COVID wave were to hit the jail. Quote, currently people experiencing flu-like symptoms typically wait three days to one week to be seen by a doctor, according to the health provider, too long to isolate COVID cases. It's important to note that, quote, the issue of missed appointments dates to the days before COVID or the current staffing crisis. In fall 2019, when 12,750 appointments were missed in October alone, the experience of one person held at Anna M. Cross Center on Rikers demonstrated the consequences for people denied care. That person who asked that his name not be published developed a rash while incarcerated that became so painful and itchy that he couldn't sleep and had difficulty eating. For weeks, he requested to see a doctor but could not get an appointment at all. Once he finally got medical visits scheduled, correction officers told him that because it wasn't an emergency, there was no one to escort him to see medical staff. It turned out that he had contracted scabies. It took over two months for him to receive proper medical attention, he said. He has scars all over his body to this day. My body was getting eaten up by this sickness, he said. I was complaining for weeks and weeks. I still have the damage. The article reports on a former inmate named Greg Williams, now a health and community advocate, who jammed two fingers in the frame of his bed while he was incarcerated last year. It took six weeks to get an x-ray after he was left waiting to be escorted to multiple appointments. Quote, his hand was in so much pain that it couldn't bear weight and he couldn't bathe properly. For one of the missed appointments, quote, there was a group of guards standing by, but Williams says they claimed that not one of could uh, that no one could take him to his appointment. You just get the runaround, he said. It seems like the more staff they have available, the less gets done. Today, he said his fingers are still permanently twisted. He wonders what his fate would have been had he suffered a back injury. Quote, the corrections officers union has called for the city to hire over 2,000 more officers to improve, improve jail conditions. While the jail's agency has countered that the core problem is the extraordinarily high portion of its workforce that refuses to come to work. Hundreds of correction officers and health practitioners protested jail conditions last week at the foot of the bridge to Rikers Island, chanting stop the triple shifts and safer jails now. One correction officer at the protest told New York Focus that it, were it not for the staffing crisis, more officers would be available to escort people to medical appointments. You cannot step away from your post, the officer said. You'll be thinking, I've been sitting here for 16, 17 hours. How can I physically and mentally care for all of these people? The officer said that showing up for work while so many other colleagues stay home means that she often gets pulled into working three days in a row and forced to skip meals when there isn't another officer to relieve her. Where does that leave us, she added. Management has to care about their staff. Uh, New York City correction officers have unlimited paid sick leave as part of their benefits package, which the monitor's letter said is being increasingly utilized and possibly abused. Officers say the benefit is necessary for a job that involves frequent and sometimes violent confrontations. Abs <clears throat> sorry, Absences have risen steeply over the last year, according to monthly data provided to New York Focus by the Department of Correction. Quote Patrick Ferri Ferriolo, Ferri Ferriolo uh, president of the Correction Captains Association, acknowledged the spike in sick leave but doesn't blame officers for calling out, given recent attacks on officers. Quote, in a series of attacks in March, including an incident where a person who was incarcerated hauled a fire ex extinguisher 
at an officer, 11 correctional staff were injured, leaving some with concussions and broken ribs. In July, a correction captain was smeared with feces by an aggravated detainee. And earlier this month, a guard was beaten and pepper sprayed. With the rise in attacks, Ferriolo said detainees should be locked in before guards are asked to work triple shifts. Correction officers chanted, bring back the box at last week's protest in response to the Board of Corrections' recent vote to reform solitary confinement in New York City jails. Using so-called punitive segregation had already been severely restricted by the board, limiting correction officers' ability to lock up and isolate detainees. There's less ability to put people in a punitive state, which the department relied very heavily on. Um, So uh, Shiraldi told New York Focus, Shiraldi is Vincent Shiraldi, the recently appointed DOC commissioner, uh, Department of Correction. Okay. And so the way that staff experiences this is the people who broke the law are getting punished less and we're getting punished more. Why should I go to work today? Republican mayoral candidate Curtis uh, Sliwa on Thursday called for a state takeover of Rikers Island, proposing that Governor Kathy Hochul step in and assume control. Uh, A mental health administrator named George Anderson, who works for Correctional Health Services, quote, said that with such long waiting times for medical care, sometimes weeks where it was once days, there is now a greater incentive for inmates to self-harm in order to be seen. He noted that in mid-August, someone wrote help in blood at one facility. Quote, Jeanette Merrill, a spokesperson for Correctional Health Services, a division of the City Health and Hospitals Organization, said DOC staffing shortages were to blame for increased wait times. Quote, before the stickouts, DOC had the highest correction officer staffing levels of any jail system in the country, currently employing about four officers for every three incarcerated people, New York Focus and the city reported last month. Quote, the monitor has recommended medical treatment within the housing units or from a, a location other than the clinic. And if individuals must be moved, staff other than the emergency response team may be better suited to the task of escorting. The monitor's May report reads. Greg Williams, quote, earlier this year testified before the city council on his observation of groups of idle correction officers loitering for long periods of time. Uh, doesn't buy, and and I'm sorry, and quote, he doesn't buy the inadequate staffing justification. I don't get it, Williams said. How can you be understaffed when you have officers sitting around doing absolutely nothing? Quote, what Williams calls the if you're not dying, don't bother me mentality has led to officers documenting what a person has that a person has refused treatment when they haven't, and at times has even led to officers forging signatures on refusal documents, said Samantha Catalanato, a social worker with the Bronx Defenders. Victoria, um, sorry, <clears throat> quote, Victoria Phillips, a member of DOC's advisory board, said that the problem stemmed from pervasive mismanagement and a lack of internal accountability mechanisms. It costs almost half a million dollars a year to incarcerate one individual, according to DOC's budget, said Phillips, an organizer with the Urban Justice Center's Mental Health Project, who has worked for over 15 years in various health divisions on Rikers Island. Yet in that budget, you can't even take someone to a medical appointment. So yeah, so that is the story. Um, it's pretty visceral and upsetting, but also maybe not shocking to anyone who's been paying attention to the prison system <clears throat> to the prison system in this country. Uh, it feels to me that when you set up a system where you lock, you know, so-called undesirable people or at least treated that way, people who are treated as undesirable, and you lock them up like animals um, and you throw them away like trash, that this sort of situation is almost inevitable. What do y'all think? 
no, I, I agree with you. Like, I definitely, um, you know, I'm not going to lie and, you know, say that everyone who's in prison is in there, but they're actually innocent or whatever, like that there's no such thing as people who are dangerous. But at the same time, um, it's what you said, like these, the system just begets even more violence than what there already was. And there are a lot of people that are locked up for things that are not violent that then become because of their environment, like more entrenched in becoming violent or getting involved in more criminal activities or their mental state deteriorates from what it already was into something even more like aggressive or threatening. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it does seem like it's this type of thing is inevitable. And just where are they? Because I've never personally been in a prison. Like, mm-hmm. where are they escorting? Where are they escorting them to specifically? Is it like the prison hospital or like they have to see other people? Like, I think that there is a clinic at the prison. I also, the article actually doesn't, I think, specify um, where the clinic is is uh i think i think they do have like a medic section in clinton in mm-hmm. prisons they're they don't get the same care by far right mm-hmm. by far but um i've heard from people who have been in prison that they've been to the dentist within prison and stuff like that they don't really leave it's my understanding they either have people come or something mm-hmm. like that but there is supposed to be a, a delegated uh, place for that to happen within the institution i think mm-hmm unless it's something severe, I would hope they would take them to the hospital, but we don't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just trying to get a wrap my head around, like, cause they're saying, you know, they need, there's this, a lack of staff to escort them. I'm trying to think like, how far is it that they're going and what, like, if it's like just a matter of being checked up on, I would think it would be possible for like medical professionals to enter into where they are. Right. But so I- you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I'm just trying to imagine what is the actual setup for them to get to the checkups. Yeah. So I think that that was one of the recommendations, even from what I gathered from the story is that um, the way it's set up now is that prisoners need to be brought to the clinic. And I think the way Rikers work, you know, you can't just like, they can't just go on their own, right? They need to be escorted from like one area where they're set to the other area where they can be treated. Um, and I think one of the recommendations to help with this issue was to have the doctors come to the the prisoners. Um, yeah, but there, I guess, I mean, I guess there's just logistical or whatever sort of, like they have these tight systems in place to keep people under tight control. And it, uh, I'm, I, get, I guess adjusting those things is not a fluid, you know, situation yeah, it, it bureaucracy seem, like that it would seem like logistically it would make more sense to have like a security detail for medical professionals and then you just on a schedule like see everyone as opposed to like every individual prisoner has to then have a detail with them to go to the doc- you know what i'm saying that's why yeah. i think that it's that they would have the professionals either come or there's a section of the prison for it i know that they do have like facilities i guess that prisons in certain areas that are nearby maybe that they would you know frequent those facilities as well if they had to drive them somewhere I don't I feel like they don't even need to I mean I don't know the article actually didn't explain where the clinic specifically is um I'm guessing it's nearby but I think I think that's part of the issue is like um 
I'm sorry, I'm losing my train of thought here. Is that like you, I mean, I think one of the issues is that, um, I'm guessing that a many of the clinics have like a lot of equipment or just certain tools they would need. So it's like hauling that around logistically doesn't make a lot of sense. And this is me like kind of guessing, guesstimating that that's part of the issue. Um, and I'm also guessing part of the issue is that this is the way that it's been done for so long that like changing that is just like hard to do, or there's not enough will to do it, or like it's a recommendation, but there's no one there like kind of like trying really hard to solve the problem you know like as easy as it might be yeah nobody really go ahead ahead, sorry i was just gonna say no one really enforces anything to happen in prisons you know right it's it's a long long history of just uh people trapped behind bars just having the worst possible case scenario all the time because nobody advocates for them yeah, absolutely. And um, it's it's September now, but it was just um, Black August, which I'm not, I'm only recently learning more about, but it's like a commemoration of um, one of the events that's commemorated is like people protesting the way that they were being treated in the jails, in, in prison. And like there is like, Therese, like Reese was saying, there is such a long history of neglect and treating prisoners like they're not humans and even in the story emily that you were reading to us like i can't imagine like having that type of job is going to wear on you and it's going to create like an antagonistic attitude towards the people that you're supposed to be quote unquote serving like even in the statements where they're like the people who broke the law are being punished less and we're being punished more like it just sounds like the whole thing is a recipe for disaster and it's not going to get better as long as the conditions stay what they are. It's really, ugh. but I'll definitely make sure on our Instagram and also on our Facebook page, I'm going to do some more research on how exactly medical care works in the New York city prison system. Cause I would like to be less ignorant about that. And you know, maybe it'll help us understand more like exactly what the stakes are in this particular story. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, like I said, I've known a couple of people who have survived prison and, you know, I've heard a couple of different stories, but I'm sure it's different depending on uh, what state you're in and how close in proximity you are to, you know, a rural place or a city as well, how long you're in prison, you know, those maximum right. security prisons as well, where people are there for, you know, more than 10 years. You know, federal would, versus state like exactly there's probably like, many variations of you know how it's done but it's always unfortunate to hear that because there's nothing that the families of people can do to help them with their health care you know while they're serving these long sentences or or short sentences for that matter and i can imagine you know there's a labor shortage all over the country so why wouldn't it be in these conditions where people don't i i, I guess people like their job they do it right but it's it's very dangerous uh, right now. So seems to be a realistic problem, but it's, you know, that doesn't mean that inmates or anybody that's subject to prison should not get the care that they need ever. Thank you so much for that story, Emily um, and Jasmine for updating us on the social media. Check that out, guys. I mean, I think that's some interesting information to find out how services and resources are given uh, to people who's affected by the criminal justice system, especially here in New York. Um, We're going to go ahead and take our first break. Uh, Welcome to September. We got some good music for you today. The first record is a really dope uh, jazz track, and it's called Free. It's by an artist named Joey DiFrancesco. 
We'll be right back. Thank you. 
You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Thanks, and here's Teresa. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll hop right into our national news segment. So this week, uh, this article and information is coming from uh, the Washington Post. This article is titled, Court Rules North Carolina Must Allow Former Felons to Vote. And the author is Paula Villegas. And there's also a second article I'll be quoting as well uh, from the New York Times by Michael Wines. And this article is called A North Carolina Court Panel Expands Voting Rights for Parolees and People on Probation. So this is some good news. I'm excited. We've been talking about um, voting rights in this country being conflictual, depending on where you are. So I'm happy to deliver a story about restorative justice. Uh, North Carolina judges ordered the restoration of voting rights for thousands of people with a felony conviction in what advocates call the largest expansion of voting rights in decades in the state. Under state law, individuals are prohibited from voting until they have fully discharged from probation, parole, or a suspended sentence, often years after they have been released from prison. Monday's ruling by a panel of state superior court in Raleigh would make North Carolina the only state in the South to automatically restore voting rights to people after they leave prison. Lawyers and advocate groups uh, filed lawsuits more than a year ago challenging the law, which was revised in 1973 and outlines when people stripped of their voting rights can regain their lo- those rights. Last year, the same judges had ruled that the law's requirement that felons must first pay monetary obligations such as fines was unforceable because voting would be bound to financial ability, and that is according to the Associated Press. GOP state lawmakers who defended the existing law in court have said they plan to appeal Monday's decision to a higher court. Lawyers representing plaintiffs who opposed the law argued in court last week that such policies are weaponized to prevent Black people from voting after the Civil War in an effort to stifle their political power. The law struck down on Monday, which was enacted in 1877, extended disenfranchisement to people convicted of felonies in response to the 15th Amendment, which enshrined black voting rights in the Constitution. But in the decade before that, local judges had reacted to the Civil War's freeing of black people by convicting them in mass and delivering public whippings, bringing them under law, denying the vote to anyone convicted of a crime for which whipping was a penalty. A handful of black legislators in the General Assembly tried to rescind the 1877 law in the early 1970s, but secured only procedural changes, such as a limit on the discretion of judges to prolong probation or court supervision. Challengers of the law also claim that in many cases, disenfranchisement persists because the inability to pay court fees and other instances, North Carolinians convicted of felonies are placed under community supervision sentences without imprisonment while paying taxes and are still barred from voting during their entire probation period. Other challengers include several people on probation or parole, the civil rights groups such as North Carolina NAACP and the Community Success Initiative, which is a Raleigh group that helps former felons re-enter society. 
In a statement, the State Board of Elections said it is, quote, reviewing the decision and will consider a written ruling upon its release. It added that county boards across North Carolina must immediately begin to permit such individuals to vote. So this is really interesting. Um, According to the Bremen Center for Justice at the New York University, a liberal nonprofit law and public policy institute, 28 states bar community members from voting simply on the basis of convictions in their past. The criminal disenfranchisement laws exclude millions of Americans from the democratic voting process and vary widely among states. Sean Morales-Doyle, an acting director in voting rights and election for the Brennan Center, says significant steps have been made since 2018, with almost a dozen states, which include Florida, Kentucky, Iowa, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, California, Nevada, Colorado, Louisiana, and Washington, moving forward the restorative restoration of voting rights, though they widely vary among the state. Uh, Some states, such as Florida and Maryland, still prevent people from voting depending on the type of crimes they've committed. Others automatically restore their right to vote upon release from prison. In the District of Columbia, Maine, and Vermont, felons never lose their right to vote, even while they are incarcerated. So as you can see, this uh, law and restorative justice for voting rights is very different across the country, um, which I think is really interesting to see where and which states have done and made some movements for this. But um, this is great news out of North Carolina. I think they said it restored the voting rights for 56,000 people, which may not seem like a lot in the greater scheme of things. But um, I think black people in North Carolina make up about 20 percent of the state and about 40% or 42% of the people who've been affected by the criminal justice system. And I read that um, further in that, um, in that um, New York, what was, where was the article from? Sorry. (laughs) You guys know what I'm trying to say. I read that in the other article from the New York times that that is the demographics of North Carolina. So this is a great day. I'm happy to hear that they're making moves in the South and um, yeah, just, Interesting to see how this this conversation is is changing. What do you ladies think? I mean, I think it's so awesome. Um, I'm just so used to hearing about all the ways that mostly the Republicans are trying to limit voting as much as possible. That I right. I was I actually hadn't heard this story, and it's it's such a delightful shock. Like, I know I have good news today. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. Also, how about both of us uh, somehow landing on a carceral sort of stories um yeah Yeah, one of those yeah mind meld things but um yeah that's awesome news yeah and it's interesting how um I don't think a lot of people realize how deep the connection is between the prison system that we have now and slavery and how it's built around the mass disenfranchisement of certain groups of people particularly black people And this is one, like the ways that you're stripped of your voting rights um, if you become a prisoner is one of the remnants of that. Um, So yeah, it's definitely a piece of good news. Um, We'll see like what further changes happen. Yeah. And one of the things about, you know, um, voter advocacy, which you girls know, I'm I'm always trying to help out in that way. That's one of the things that I Uh, definitely have fought for a lot in my life is um, on a a real simple basis, letting people know that they are eligible, like in a literal sense, you are eligible to vote. This is how you do it. Fill out this form. This is the day to go check out this information to learn the candidates. Like that's sort of like basic education and that basic access um, connection is part of the advocacy. 
You know, um, these are there are a lot of people who have been affected by the criminal justice system all over this country. And I didn't know how many states had opportunities for them to vote. Um, I did get that tailpiece of the article saying that the um, people in those particular states never lost their voting rights in the District of Columbia, Maine and Vermont. Felons never lose their right to vote even while they're incarcerated. I didn't know that. Me either. I when you said that I was going to bring that up next, like that's like pretty awesome yeah i mean and you know. i wonder how many of them are aware of that exactly right. exactly you know like there's so that's there's a lot of things where not knowing and people deliberately like not telling you like i know that that happened when it came to like the stimulus checks and stuff being able to get that there was a campaign i was a part of like to send letters to people on the inside to explain to them that they do have a right to that money and how they can access it because it was not being made clear to them and there were people like they weren't being told at all cuz i mean i'm sure a lot of people would just assume like well i'm in here i can't vote or like well i'm in here i can't get a stimulus check or whatever and you do have people that will like rip up people's mail and stuff like that to keep them from getting access to some information. So yeah, I'd I'd be curious to know like how many of them have that right and exercise it because they're aware that they still have it and how many don't have any idea. Right. And my last like great point about this, and then, you know, we'll move on the show. Um, Think about the process that was already established for people to regain their voting rights. This was a whole thing. Like they had to finish their sentence, their probation, their parole, and then apply, you know, with some paperwork and like wait on a response and probably have to have supporting documents. You know, there was this whole like rigmarole to even give people an opportunity to do it. So a lot of people didn't do it merely because of that. They would have to just, you know, stick it out. And uh, one of the great things about this is it's immediate. Like anybody who has a felony conviction or right now in North Carolina could go fill out a voter registration card and be included in the next election. Um, so I think that's awesome. You know, it's so removing barriers. It's, you know, restoring rights to people that need them, you know, probably the most more than a lot of people uh, probably have a different understanding of what it even means to have your rights and have freedom. Um, so that's really great. And I hope that this is, you know, a wave of something else that happens across the country and other places that are greatly affected, which is everywhere, um, by the criminal justice system. So we're going to go ahead and take our next break before getting to the world news and a bit of good news. Uh, this is this next song is called "You Want My Love" and it's by Earth, Wind, and Fire and Lucky Day. We'll be right back.
Radio Free Brooklyn is sponsored in part by Elevate Pharmacy, offering little or no cost medical braces. More information is available at 844-598-6639. Welcome back to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our world news segment, Jasmine, you're up. Okay, so the, the world news story is about something that recently happened in the West African country of Burkina Faso. But before I get to the most recent story, I'm going to give you some background. Uh, So what we now know as Burkina Faso came under French control in 1896, and it remained under French control until 1960. Um, The French called the country the Upper Volta. In 1960, the Upper Volta became independent with Maurice Yameogo as president. Um, in 1966, Yameogo top, was toppled in a military coup led by Sanguli Lamizana following unrest over a government austerity program. Lamizana remained in control until 1980. In 1980, President Lamizana was ousted in a coup led by Saye Zerbo. Two years later, in 1982, Saye Zerbo was overthrown in a coup led by Jean-Baptiste Ouedraogo following industrial unrest. And then the following year, in 1983, Captain Thomas Sankara took power from President Ouedraogo in an internal power struggle. Um, And all of that information came from the BBC. Um, And now uh, some background information on Thomas Sankara, who took control in 1983 from Britannica. Um, During his course, uh, during his term as president, Sankara successfully implemented programs that vastly reduced infant mortality, 
increased literacy rates and school attendance, and boosted the number of women holding governmental post, posts. On the environmental front, in the first year of his presidency alone, 10 million trees were planted in an effort to combat desertification. Um, this is an aside, not from a Britannica, but Thomas Sankara also did things like outlawing female circumcision and polygamy. Um, he also made it so that um, certain like tribal leaders that were used to being able to demand forced labor and tribute payments from people living around them were no longer able to do that. Uh, however, he did take control in a military coup and he was a military man. And also during his tenure, he banned trade unions and oppositional uh, political parties. Um, on the anniversary, the back to the Britannica, on the anniversary of the coup that brought him to power, he changed the country's name from Upper Volta to Burkina Faso, which means roughly land of upright people in Maasai and Dula, the country's two most widely spoken indigenous language, the languages. On October 15, 1987, Sankara was assassinated in a coup led by Blaise Campaore and two others. Um, Blaise Campaore was um, a close aide of Sankara and he was president from 1987 through 2014. Uh, and later this year, he's actually going to be on trial for the murder of Thomas Sankara. Um, it's also important to note, this is not from Britannica, this is me talking, that uh, while Sankara was an anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist you know, and was very into like trying to make the country self-sufficient and reduce foreign influence, Campaiori was much more friendly with uh, Western imperial powers and business interests. Okay, so that's it for the background. Um, and this story comes from Reuters. It's pretty brief. The title is, I am gold suspends convoys to Burkina Faso gold mine after attack. Um, the reporting was done by Aaron Ross. It was written by Cooper Inveen and edited by David Clark. In Ouagadougou, um, gunmen attacked a convoy of I Am Gold Corporation vehicles traveling to the Esakane gold mine in Burkina Faso on Tuesday, wounding one police officer before being repelled by the convoy's security detail, the Canadian mining company said. Following the attack, I Am Gold has suspended convoys to and from es Esakane which is the company's biggest operating mine and is near the border with Niger. Assailants fired on the vehicles from several hundred meters away and retreated after a brief firefight with security personnel. No passengers were hurt and the police officer is in a stable condition, the statement issued on Tuesday said. After analysis of the situation, all convoys coming or going to Esakane are canceled until further notice, the Toronto-listed company said. The attack came less than two weeks after at least 80 people were killed when Islamist militants raided a civilian convoy that was being escorted by military police near the northern town of Arbinda. Militant violence in Burkina Faso, Niger, and Mali has intensified in recent years despite the presence and interventions by UN, regional, and Western troops. 
Thousands of civilians have been killed and millions displaced by the violence in Burkina Faso since 2018. Um, just as a side note, this is also from the BBC. Life expectancy in Burkina Faso is only 59 years for men and 61 years for women. According to the World Bank, 40.1% of its population live below the national poverty line. And Canada owns 94 different mining companies uh, throughout the African continent, which I personally was not aware of and is a very large number. Thank you for that story, Jasmine, and all the background history as well. Like I wasn't, I'm not really up on the history of that country at all. Um, you know, just another, I mean, not just another, it's, it seems like it fits in with a lot of the stories we talk about on, about how, you know, capitalism and, um, colonialism and all those things, um, come together to create, um, a lot of issues to this day, hundred things that are hundreds of years old and how those things still filter down to the world we live in today. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not the strongest in geography, but a lot of people don't know some countries even exist um, or they have an idea that like, oh, X, Y, and Z countries, they used to be under the control of this or that Western government, but then they were free in 1950-something or 1960-something, and then what Mm -hmm. isn't really emphasized is the degree to which like you can be free but sometimes in name only mm -hmm. like if it's if your economy and politics are still being largely dominated by foreign interests mm -hmm. you know how free are the people really yeah and you know when you have like local attacks or whether the attacks are from inside or outside of the country it's always really hard to uh, place where it's coming from, you know, so there's not really anything you can do about it. And, 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 and things like this happen and it's, you know, no one's really held accountable or responsible and people lose their life, you know, for, um, and it's really awful. Yeah. I just, it, it, this story stuck out to me as far as, you know, Canada being like a wealthy Western country, having all of these companies throughout the African continent, continent yeah, no, where that was really interesting as well. It's like clearly there's resources, there's wealth being generated and wealth being extracted from these places. But the people that actually live there are largely like subsisting and barely making it. And it, you know, that that made me pretty upset because it does create an environment where like you're driving people to take very drastic actions or to be like in despair or to be very vulnerable but all this wealth is being just continuing to be stolen from them and taken away. So yeah, I would definitely encourage people to read up more on the history of not just Burkina Faso um, and the legacy of Thomas Sankara and the reforms that he did made. He made a lot of great strides with like immunization and um, eradicating like certain longstanding problems that had been going on in the country. Um, not that everything was like perfect under him, but I, I think he's someone more people should be aware of and know about and um, the efforts that were put into taking him down. And then now we see where the country is now with these attacks happening so often and who's benefiting from, 
you know, all this wealth being taken from them. Like it's clearly not everyday people in the country. And it also creates like a atmosphere for us to have like so many refugees because people are trying to escape situations like this um, all over the world and they'll do anything, you know, to try to save their lives and they want to flee this sort of violence and which just leads to, you know, we really need leaders to understand when people are needing to move without the world, you know, for their safety. Like it just really reminds me of if, you know, if those sort of things were happening near here or you know, why wouldn't you want to get out of that situation or try to make their life better, you know, for yourself, uh, for your family. So it just really makes me think about, you know, the greater impact that these things have, um, you know, on how people in countries that have been ravaged by different, you know, corruption and issues with, you know, coups and things of that nature, shifting governments and not having government destabilization just really creates more chaos on a global scale. Because people become displaced and disenfranchised and, you know. Yeah, I actually was, I translated for a woman who was from Burkina Faso and she was seeking asylum. Um, And it was, you know, I, I don't know what happened with her case. I certainly hope that she was able to stay. But you're absolutely right, Teresa. It's like there's all this meddling that happens an extraction and exploitation that happens around the world. And then when people are trying to get to freedom, all these walls are thrown up in their way. Yeah. Or like they try to improve their own home and then you get assassinated or, you know, disappeared because you're not propping up the business interests of people that don't live where you live. You know, it's like you're damned if you do, if you stay and fight, and then you're damned if you try to escape to somewhere else. Exactly. Exactly. And it just, you know, it just adds to the chaos of things um, around the world. But, you know, definitely a good story to help us think just broad, you know, broadly how these things penetrate different systems and really affect people's lives um, on a global scale. So thank you for that, Jasmine, and that background. Definitely always interesting to learn the background and history of other countries and learn about other leaders and, you know, things like that, Um, you know, enrich your mind. Well, I guess we have made it to one of my favorite parts of the show. Emily, what is the good news, girl? All right. So uh, this story comes from an August 30th Reuters article by Ahmed Abulenin titled U.S. Health Department Sets Up Climate Change Office. The article explains, quote, The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has established an office to address climate change and health equity at the national level, Secretary Xavier Becerra said on Monday. The office aims to protect vulnerable communities disproportionately affected by pollution and climate-driven disasters, including drought and wildfires, he said. There is no doubt that America is experiencing climate change, and there is no room for us to doubt that we must take this on immediately, because it's not just about the climate, it's not just about our environment, it's about our health. Quote, Biden has made tackling the climate crisis domestically and abroad a key part of his agenda. He ordered in May the creation of a comprehensive government-wide climate risk strategy within 120 days. Establishing the Office of Climate Change and Health Equity is part of that strategy, Becerra said. The office will identify communities disproportionately exposed to climate hazards, address health disparities resulting from climate change, and help with regulations aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the healthcare sector. 
Biden aims to cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030 and reach net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, So, yeah, in my opinion, this is an awesome step in the right direction in terms of addressing the, you know, existential threat that is climate change. Um, And to go the added layer of understanding that this isn't, you know, that this affects some people disproportionately. Um, And it affects, you know, it's not just, it affects everything, including your health um, is awesome and really important. And in general, the more that we acknowledge the impacts of climate change and the more that we as a society focus on it and choose to focus on it, uh, the more progress we can make in combating it and honestly, maybe saving humanity down the road. I don't know, or at least, you know, saving some lives in the short term. Um, But yeah, I was really happy to hear that something so monumental was happening on the government stage. Thank you so much for that story. It's always good to hear good news. I'm glad this is a new office. Um, definitely something that we need. You know, there's all these offices for things that don't help us. It's nice to hear that there's something that's there to establish, <laughs> you know, something, a foundational sort of effort, you know, from a larger scale um, institution. Totally. All right. Absolutely. Thank you for the good news. And I guess that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you all so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Please keep listening for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to go ahead and play you out with our final track of the day. Um, This is a great song. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I checked out the Donda, and I'm going to give Mr. West a spot today, especially because this song has a dope um, sample from the Lauryn Hill, That Thing track. So I enjoyed it. I hope you do, too. The song is called Believe What I Say, and it is uh, for Kanye, from Kanye West. We'll see Yo. you next week. Happy Sunday. Yo. My men and my women. Bye. Yo. See you Yo. next week. Bye. Yo. My men and my women. You need something Yo. unexpected. Yo. Some form of weapon, you ask him to feel protected, and still feel protected, just one time for the wreck it, just one time for the wreck it, don't agree with the message, don't agree with the methods, don't let, don't let the lifestyle drag you down, who knows when was the last time you found Vibe worthy, I don't want my mind alerting. People saying tweeting gonna make you die early. How about have my heart hurting? Hold it on the side, that can make you die early. Gonna get your best attorney. Something's there, feel it when I heard it. Just release the spirit, let it flow though. How do you leaving that with one leg like low joke? Now we to the cross of long nails like Coco. Free throw coat for the throat goats. Even if I gotta do it solo, even if I gotta do it with no promo. Get my point across till we finally get across and pass the point. So, just a couple things that I gotta quote. Don't involve yourself in things you don't have to know. I ain't never question what you was asking for. I give you every single thing you was asking for. I don't understand how anybody could ask for more. Got a list of even more, I just laugh it off. I be going through things I had to roll. Celebrity drama that only rather know. Too many family secrets, somebody passing notes. Things I cried about, I find laughable. Baby Jesus ain't laughing, no Don't involve yourself in things that ain't have to know 
The big man upstairs ain't laughing, no. Don't involve yourself in things that ain't have to know. Now here we are. You know I'm not about it. Showed you my heart. I let you into my thoughts. Don't let, don't let the lies down drag you down. Who knows when was the last time you felt the love? One last sparkle to follow in my life. One last sparkle to follow in love. One last sparkle to follow in my life. One last sparkle to follow. Okay. I didn't draw a fit when you said you wanted to leave. I told you I loved you, but you didn't believe. Too easily fooled, so easily deceived by some dude who's more rather into greed. Played by your emotions, you were swamped by your needs. Told I didn't believe, you said I was out to deceive. <laughs> you said that I lie. How did I? I told you everything. Didn't I? But you just could not believe. Man, I'm so peeved. Your friends all up in your head, even when we're in bed. Your mind's elsewhere. And you say you care? <laughs> I'm laughing at you all. You think you got me? No, no. My back ain't against the wall. The wall, the wall, the wall, the wall. Don't let, don't let the Radio Free Brooklyn is sponsored in part by Peters Valley School of Craft. Peters Valley presents the Fall Craft Fair at the Sussex County, New Jersey Fairgrounds on September 25th and 26th. Visitors can browse and buy handcrafted pieces from over 100 exhibiting artists. Ticket sales support Peters Valley School of Craft, fostering creative thinking through fine craft education, programs, and events. Tickets and more information at petersvalley.org. That's P-E-T-E-R-S-V-A-L-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Radio Free Brooklyn is sponsored in part by Elevate Pharmacy, offering little or no cost medical braces. More information is available at 844-598-6639.